0: I've entitled this morning's message uh, for the promise for those who wait. And I'll begin with some questions. What is it that we often find ourselves waiting for? Perhaps it's waiting for someone to take your order in a restaurant. Perhaps it's waiting for someone to bring that food that you ordered in the restaurant. More importantly, maybe it's waiting for the news from a doctor on your latest blood work. Maybe you find yourself impatient waiting in the cheap gas line for all the vehicles in front of you to fill up and get out of the way. What about that soon-to-be mother waiting for contractions to reach that point of delivery. No, oftentimes we do find ourselves waiting. And here in chapter 9, the writer is set to remind the Hebrews that he is writing to, who once trusted Christ, but are now wavering in faith. They're contemplating returning to a works ordinance based relationship and religion. And he wants to remind them that should they do that, they will find themselves always waiting again. They will find themselves waiting for the next event, the next festival, waiting for the Sabbath, waiting for the Day of Atonement so that their sins can be forgiven And he is here to remind every reader, as the Spirit of God would remind us this morning as well, that now there is something far greater to be waiting for. And he does this in their lives by bringing things familiar to them. Things that each one of uh, a Hebrew would know and understand. He speaks, of course of the tabernacle and of Christ as he is going to move to that subject of the greatest thing that they could find themselves in wait for. Come backwards with me to verse one of chapter nine. As we find the writer to the Hebrews now revisiting the subject of the covenant the tabernacle in which that covenant took place. Verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Throughout this chapter, there are promises that various portions in the chapter provided uh, the the reader, provided the Hebrew that uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to. And for us to kind of wrap ourselves around those promises, we find here that there was a promise in the furnishings of the old tabernacle. Notice there it says that uh, it was prepared in the first part in which verse two, there was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Chapter nine is also a a chapter of contrast where many things are are brought to be compared or contrasted one with another. Uh, For instance, in the tabernacle, there's the earthly Tabernacle in which the way to the the presence of God was veiled. And then there's the heavenly tabernacle where there's no veil. Uh, The earthly tabernacle was made with hands. Uh, The contrasted to Christ, who was not of this creation, the the heavenly tabernacle. He contrasts the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, against the uh, priesthood of Christ who was one great high priest. The offerings of the Levitical priesthood continued, whereas Christ gave one offering, the sacrifice of himself. And so in this first section, he begins to draw the picture of this tabernacle and its furnishings. I tried to get some uh, visuals for us, but... Shutterstock and all those places wanted money, so I, I didn't do it. You know, I'm just going to have to draw a picture verbally. But um, so this this tabernacle that was built was 150 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. So actually, this uh, facility that we're in is roughly about 70 feet wide, and it's. Pretty close. I think it's, uh, someone have to clarify for me. Maybe it's 130 feet or something. And so similar would be where the walls of this entire tabernacle, uh, including the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies was. Inside that outer court, as you walked in through the eastern gate, there was the bronze altar and then the bronze laver, The altar was where the sacrifices would take place. The labor is where the priests would wash afterwards. And then moving forward, you came to this uh, structure that was 45 feet long, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide. It was divided into two parts. The Holy of Holies was 15 feet square and the first part in which we read in verses one and two was called the holy place." And as they, as the priests only would walk into that, that first section they would find the lampstand, the table, and the showbread called the sanctuary behind me on my my left, you see a menorah that is similar to, although not in size, it is similar in design as to what the priests would find the moment they walked into this covered, completely covered structure with animal skins and put together. Thank you so much. You are awesome. There you go. And so as they walked in, on their left would be the the lampstand. On their right was this table that had showbread or loaves of bread on it. The lampstand, of course, was, uh, it held these bowls that were filled with oil and a wick, and it was the only light inside this place. And so, as the priest walked in, the light lighting the place, he would find that the oil cups were still filled. Part of his duty was to keep that oil filled so that the light would never go out as long as the holy place and the Holy of Holies was erected. They would tear it down. They would move on. They would find a place God would say settle here. They would erect the entire outer court again and up would go the structure in which sacrifice and offering and the worship of God would take place. The, outer cor- the uh, first room was called a sanctuary. The light, of course, was pointing forward to Jesus Christ as the light of the world. The showbread had 12 loaves on the table, each loaf represented, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the duties was to place fresh bread on that table Every day. Why? Because God wanted his relationship with those tribes to be fresh every day. But we also know that the bread on the table, the show bread, was also another prefigure or pointing to Christ, who said that he is the bread of heaven. Now, he was referring, of course, to the manna that comes down, but he is the bread of life. And so we have here the promises that the writer to the Hebrews is going to get to are all there in the furnishings. Now, as they proceeded, they would go past... You, you see those two blue veils there? Those were thick, thick veils. And behind the second veil was... Uh, Notice we read in verse 3, let's read it. It says, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things, we cannot speak in detail. Now, just briefly describing, let's address, uh, we, we see the second veil. Behind that second veil, let's address uh, something in the text. In verse 4, it says that the golden censer, or, or also called the, uh, uh, the altar of incense, we see that it's on this side of the veil. But here in the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews is making a statement that is necessary to be interpreted spiritually. Let me explain. The altar of incense in this first section, which is where it dwells physically and practically, was also representative of altar of incense, the here called the golden censer. Another duty of the priest was to always make sure that incense was there and that it was burning and that the smoke was going up. And what did that represent? It represented the prayers of the people. And God didn't ever want that to be extinguished. He always wanted his people. Crying out to him, praying to him. And though physically the altar was on this side of the second veil, on the other side of that veil it was called the holiest of all, or the the holy of holies. It was the place where God dwelt. And so if you can track with me here what the writer is seeking to uh, infuse the New Testament Hebrew believer with is that their prayers now with a physical tabernacle no longer how to deal with God, were to continually be in God's presence. Even then, their prayers were to be in the presence of God. And they were to go through the the priest once a year would go through that second veil into the holiest of all, which was the Ark of the Covenant, which had in it these things. It had a pot that had manna from their travels through the wilderness. It had Aaron's rod that had budded. You remember number 17 when the people complained about whose um, uh, tribe should really be the priest. Number 17, Moses said, give me one rod representing from each one of your tribes and I'll put them before the Lord and the rod that buds, that will be the tribe in which God will honor us as the leaders spiritually. And it was Aaron's rod that budded, the others did not. Also in that ark were the the tablets of the covenant. And you say, Why is all this important? Hang with me one more moment. On top of that ark, two cherubim, angelic type creatures that are sitting on notice. What does it say? Overshadowing the mercy seat. Because inside that cabinet, that ark, that carrier of the things that represented God's covenant with his people He would always deal with them in mercy as he always deals with us in mercy. And when the author makes this statement, thank you so much for that picture. When the author deals with these statements in that last sentence when he says, of these things we cannot speak, now speak in detail. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is he doesn't want his reader, nor does the spirit of God want us to get all consumed with the furnishings because they were representations of Christ. And if we're to be consumed with anything, it's to be consumed with Christ. The lampstand represented Jesus. The bread on the table, Jesus. The altar of incense, Christ as our intercessor. The veils, remember the veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. The rod of Aaron, Christ's priesthood. The tablets of the law pointing to a time in which God would deal with his people in grace. The cherubim in the mercy seat representing the mercy of God. The writer is saying to his Hebrew reader, don't get caught up in the furnishings. There are promises in those furnishings of something better. We move now to uh, verse 6, in which we find that there's another promise, a promise in, in the Old Testament services. Verse 6 says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. As I mentioned, they were to keep the oil cups filled. They were to keep the bread on the table fresh every day. They were to keep the altar of incense filled with incense representing the prayers of God's people. But notice verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone alone Once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. As they're traveling through the wilderness trying to work out what it is that God has given them in terms of his, his law, his le- love letter, and how they lived their lives. There were things also that they, they did not know. And so sins committed in ignorance. Once a year, the high priest would go in, and he would go in with blood. Verse 8, that the, the Holy Spirit was indicating this, That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, as long as that is the way in which you, my people, are to connect with me, your God then the way into that holiest place of all, the presence, where I am, it's not yet manifest, it's not yet made known, it's not yet clear. But it was made clear on the day that Christ died. It was made clear on the day when he said, It is finished, and the veil was rent from top to bottom in in the tabernacle that Herod had built knowing that by faith in Christ and his efficient blood, that every believer would now have that same access that only the high priest had into the presence, the presence of God. We find in verse 9 that it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. So we find again here that there, there was a promise in uh, the, the services performed. And what was that promise is that those services could not make the one who performed them perfect in regard to the conscience. And see, that's a big, uh, that was a big blow to the, the Hebrew who would be reading this. That would be a big blow to anyone reading this, Hebrew or Gentile, that wants to have a relationship with God but is constantly kind of um, fighting, perhaps, their conscience because they know at times they think things that are certainly not holy. They have thoughts that run through their mind that they would prefer God not know they think. They have things going on in the brain that if jesus was sitting right there next to them you know the the lord jesus would say hey what are you thinking about right the conscience right and so under that old system though the worshiper would bring sacrifice and it would be sacrificed to the lord and and the priest would offer that sacrifice That never made one's conscience clear. And so there was a promise that needed to be made further. In verses ten and four, we say, we see that concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. Now, that's not the historical Reformation that we know of in the 1400s when, when uh, Roman Catholicism was uh, challenged. Uh, Martin Luther, who uh, used to be a Catholic monk, in his reading of, of the New Testament, was convinced that it is no longer by works that a person is saved, but that they are justified by faith alone. And the Protestant movement, as it were, was, was birthed, we call that the time of the Reformation. But this is, this is written before that. This is written uh, 1,400 years before that. Well, thirteen. And so what's he, what reformation is he talking about? He's talking about the time when Christ would come and reform how an individual deals with their conscience. And so we find in verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Hallelujah. You see, the promise that was there in uh, the blood, as the writer is talking about, yeah, there was, there was blood offered and the priest would sacrifice, but the promises is not in that blood. It's not in the blood of bulls and of goats and the heifer of the spring. The promise is in the blood of Christ. And what promises do we find? Just in that text, we find that there's a promise of a conscience being cleansed. In other words, no, that doesn't mean that my mind never has another evil, vile, dirty, ungodly. Let's just leave it at that. Ungodly thought. A lot of us really understand dirty, vile, okay? Unholy. An unholy thought. You ever had an unholy thought? Sure you have. Each one of us has. But if I were to try and say, well, how can I, how can I be cleansed of that thought? The blood of Christ. How can I be forgiven for that thought? The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience. The blood of Christ redeems the soul. The blood of Christ saves the sinner. The blood of Christ removes its memory from the mind of God. Remember God said, uh, I will put my law in their mind. And in their hearts and their sins and their evil deeds, I will remember no more. God, if you've come to Christ, listen, if you've come to Christ, God has forgotten your sin. And if somebody is reminding you of how sinful you are, it ain't God. Terrible English, isn't it? But we have an adversary of our soul that would rather we walk in defeat, that would rather we focus on how you know, imperfect we are, how much we didn't serve the Lord. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? And yet, the blood of Christ cleanses my conscience, redeems my soul, saves me as a sinner, reminds me that God has forgotten. He's cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. The blood of Christ lifts the believer above their circumstance. The blood of Christ can lift you above your circumstance. Is life hard? Are things difficult? You bet. As someone once said, Christ did not die to give us a, a better life. He, di- he said, I came that you might have life and it more abundantly. Here in the West, we, man, we do some odd things with, with what our Constitution talks about the pursuit of uh, life and happiness. Now I own a home, I have two cars, I have many possessions. And in those possessions within themselves there is nothing wrong. But if those possessions dictate how I live my life, in other words, if what I possess possesses me, then and I am a, a born again spirit-filled walking with Jesus Christian, then I'm missing the point. The point is, is that what if he were to take all of that away? Is he still God? Yes. What if he were to change your circumstances tomorrow? Does that mean he loves you any less or or wants all but blessing for you? No. Please don't wrap yourself around the fallacy That now that I have Christ, it's, it's happily ever after. In fact, we're encouraged in many letters in the New Testament that it is through trial and hardship that God matures us. And so coming to Christ by the blood of Christ is a promise of eternity with God and the promise of blessing here on earth but be careful that you don't try to describe what you think blessing will be because that lies in the hands of God. You know that that song, Blessing, such a beautiful song. It's probably a decade old now. The blood of Christ lifts the believer above his circumstance and finally it opens heaven to us while here on earth yes you and I can experience heaven while here on earth how through the blood of Christ we can walk into the presence of God and everything that so easily besets us can be set to the side I I'm reminding us this morning that you know Christianity is not a moral code Christianity is not a a right set of thinking. And there are some organizations out there that have reduced Christian faith to uh, right morals, or good behavior, or the appropriate actions. Christianity is not a a cultural right. In other words, uh, this culture is good because they're Christians. No, not necessarily. Cultures are cultures. They're not uh, the body of Christ. And Christianity is not a politic right or wrong. Please don't reduce the Christian faith to a given party of politic. Are we to d- defend our Constitution and the rights within which we live? Absolutely. Are we to fight for... for Good laws that will keep our households, family, children, educational processes, and all of that stuff, law enforcement, safe? Absolutely. But don't reduce Christianity to a politic. Because it's not. The blood of Christ. That's where the promise is. There was a promise in the need for blood always, verse 15. The writer goes on to say, And for this reason, he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, of the eternal inheritance. And once again, the writer to the Hebrews, writing to Hebrews, to Jews, who had been engrossed in Judaism but had now come to faith in Christ, wondering about all those who had passed before them, that Jesus becomes the mediator of this new covenant to everyone who is called. God knows those who had passed before who would have accepted Christ as the Messiah and are then therefore promised the the eternal inheritance. I know a bit deep here, but um, based on the foreknowledge of God, told that Jesus went down to the lower parts and preached that gospel. And and when he ascended, the graves were opened up and all those that had died in faith raised with him at that point in time. And so the Hebrew that's that's reading this letter would have wondered about them and the writer is making clear to the reader that, that no, the law doesn't mediate that any longer. Jesus mediates This new covenant for in verse 16, he says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, the water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And so there was a promise in the need for blood. But pointing forward, he is talking about that the blood of bulls and of goats and calves only had uh, an effect while that covenant was in place. Likewise, in verse 21, then likewise, he sprinkled uh, with blood both the tabernacle and all its vessels, of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Powerful promise right there. Promise of the need for blood. Why? There's no taking away of sin without blood. And under the old covenant, I shared this last week, the, the sin of the worshiper was kofar. It was covered. In the blood of Christ, it is taken away. Remembered no more. Hallelujah. I depend on that. I live by that every day, by that truth. That God isn't remembering my yesterdays. It frees me to serve him more fully tomorrow. Then we have the promise of intercession. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, what was happening in that tabernacle was a copy it was a foreshadow of what is going on in heaven and down here it needed to be purified with the things that purified uh, it but the heavenly things in verse 23 themselves with better sacrifices than these for Christ as we read in our text this morning Did not enter the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hallelujah. The promise of intercession. Christ is there at the right hand. Did you know he's standing there seated, actually, at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me? He's interceding. He's saying, Father, remember my blood is over their lives. Father, do not place this transgression again for They know not what they do. Father, they're covered by my blood. He's interceding for you and for me. The promise of Christ's intercession Yet, we also have a promise of judgment. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as, and as it is appointed for men to die once, But after this, the judgment. Oh, yes. There's a promise of judgment. There's a promise of death. We're not here forever. We're here for a short time. And isn't it interesting how in our, oh, my goodness, in our teens, we, I mean, 30 looks old when you're a teenager. And then you get to your mid-twenties. I've talked to many a guy who thinks, you know, at 25 is when I'm really going to launch into, you know, what I'm doing in life. And at 25, 50 looks old. And you get to 50 and you realize, that's not old. And you start categorizing, you know, what's, what's old, what's young, what's long, what's short. Is 70 years long. Hey. Scripture tells us that in in the mind, the heart, and in the eyes of God, we're here like for a breath. That's how long. We're just here for a breath. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Do you know that Only what you do for Christ will stand. Corinthians tells us that there's no other foundation laid except that which has been laid in Christ Jesus. And those who build uh, wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones, that, that in the body of Christ, there are those who will build on the foundation of Christ, but what they're building is wood, hay, and stubble, things that will burn. Rather than gold, silver, and precious stones, Peter refers to to the body of Christ as being uh, precious stones. Gold being the purity of, of Christ himself, silver, the, the redemptive works. Are you living your life in such a way, if you've come to Christ, are you now living your life in such a way where the things you're building are... Precious in the sight of God, or are they just gonna, you know, they're just gonna burn when you enter the pearly gates? You see, judgment and death are coming, but for the one covered in the blood of Christ, there is not going to be a judgment because the sin that would have judged us. And separate us from God has now been met in the sacrifice of Christ for us. So that verse, 27 of Hebrews chapter 9, should bring bring an almighty fear into the heart of anyone that reads it that has not yet submitted their life to Christ. I remember years ago talking with a man who read that verse and called and said, I want to make sure I go to heaven. because once we die it's over there's no there's no you know trying to get it right after that point the best promise of all the promise for those who wait last verse one of my favorites so christ was offered once to bear the sins of many And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin and for salvation. That's the best of all these promises, in my view, is that a time is coming in which Christ will return. And I don't know what you're waiting for whether it's the gas line the food order a new baby to be born termination conversation of blood work from a doctor or you're waiting for that career or that that mate in life or I don't know I don't know I don't know what you're waiting for but I know this, that if you eagerly wait for Christ, if he's the one you're hoping to see, to you he will appear. If you haven't made that decision this morning to place your attention on his return and to eagerly await him may I admonish you to do so before you leave this room. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we ask you this morning to receive our worship, to lead us and guide us as we close our time together. And God, I ask that even in the midst of a troubled world in which we recognize that that our attention can be taken by many things would you by the power of your holy spirit the ministry of your word by your grace alone cause us to eagerly wait for you lord we know you're coming We don't know when, but we certainly want to be ready. And so would you cause us to wait with eagerness, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.